Well, I want to begin today by reading you a story told by Ralph Kuyper. He tells the story of an eight-year-old girl attending vacation Bible school at his church. On one particular afternoon, she found her way into his study and, to his great surprise, asked, Mr. Kuyper, is it all right if I commit suicide? The young pastor was startled, but he had learned never to respond to a child's question with a quick yes or no without first discovering the child's reason for the inquiry. Mary, he said, why would you ever want to commit suicide? Well, she answered, it's because of what I learned in Bible school this morning. What in the world did she learn in Bible school, Kuiper thought to himself. We were taught that heaven is a wonderful place. No fear, no crying, no fighting. We were taught that when you die, when we die, we go to be with Jesus. Did I hear it right, Mr. Kuiper? Yes, Mary, you heard it right. But why do you want to commit suicide? Well, you've been to my house. You know my mommy and daddy. They don't know Jesus. They get drunk almost every night. So we have to get ourselves up in the morning. We have to make our own breakfast and go to school in dirty clothes. The other children make fun of us. And then when we come home again, we hear fighting and other things that make us scared. Why shouldn't I commit suicide? Wouldn't heaven be better? How would you answer this question? The little girl's got a point, right? We live in a world that is messed up. The Bible tells us that this world is cursed. Uh, there's sin, sickness, disappointments, temptations, family problems, fracture in relationships, and friendships that don't go the way that you want them to. And at the same time, heaven is awesome. No pain, sickness, or suffering. Plus, as a Christian, when you go to heaven, you can do everything better. You can praise God better. You can sing better. You can obey God better, love God better, love others better. You can run faster, play basketball better. The food's better in heaven. And Jesus is there. And you get to be with him. You get to behold him, embrace him and never let him go. In heaven, your faith turns to sight. So why wouldn't you want that now? So if this little girl Mary came up to you, what would your answer be? Well, there are many reasons why one should not commit suicide. And you can go through these biblical answers, but one answer, uh, one biblical answer that I would give is, Mary, 
You shouldn't commit suicide because you have a mission. It's to tell your mom and dad about Jesus. It's to tell your friends about Jesus. And it's to take all the time that God gives you on this earth to make new friends and tell them about Jesus as well. That's why we're not in heaven right now. To do the one thing that you can't do in heaven. And that is to bring some friends with you. There's no evangelism in heaven. Everybody's a Christian there. And so you just have this small window of time called your life, and you're given a specific mission to accomplish during your life. We call it the Great Commission. Matthew 28 19 to 20, Jesus gives us our marching orders and says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is the mission. Go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them all that Christ has taught us. And this great commission, this mission that every Christian is given to accomplish is repeated in the Bible, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. All four gospel and the book of Acts. You know when you're trying to emphasize something important to someone, you tend to repeat yourself. Do you get what the Bible's trying to communicate here? Go, 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 go. Make disciples. This is the mission. This is your mission. So let's talk about it. I want to do three things today. First, I want to look at John chapter 17, verses 17 to 18. Then I want to move on to some practical encouragements and practical applications based on John 17, and then I want to end with a challenge to all of us. You can turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. In this chapter, we find Jesus praying. His time has come. He's hours away from his crucifixion and after dying and rising and ascending into heaven, his disciples will be left without their leader, without their shepherd, uh, without their teacher that they've had these past three years. And so before leaving, this leader prays for them. And in chapter 17, we find him in communion with his father, earnestly asking for help for the disciples. And we're going to focus on verses 17 and 18, but let's start in verse 15 to get a feel for the prayer of Jesus. John 17, starting in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We're going to look at verses 17 and 18. In verse 17, we have the preparation for the mission. And in verse 18, you have the sphere of the mission. We already know what the mission is, to go and to make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. So let's learn how to prepare for it, verse 17, and let's learn where it takes place, what realm, what sphere the mission takes place. Verse 17, the preparation for the mission. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This verse is very simple, the power to sanctify, the power to make you more holy and more pure, the power to grow as a Christian is found in the truth of God's word. Read this book. Study this book. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be able to live this book. Psalm 119.11 your word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's truth sanctifies. But notice the context of verse 17. A lot of times we quote verse 17 all by itself, because there's a lot of truth there, and because it's easy to memorize, and because it's very handy when it comes to certain counseling cases. But did you notice where it is? Did you notice what it's surrounded by? Two verses about being in the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And then verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world world. Why is it so important that the disciples be sanctified by the truth? Because they're going to need it. They're being sent on a mission into the world. And so they need to be purified and holy because they're going into the world, but they must not be worldly. They're going into the world, but they must remain unstained by the world. James 1.27. They're going into the world, but they must not be conformed to the world. Romans 12.2. They're going into the world, but they're called to be salt and light in the world. Matthew 5.13-16. So before you go into the world, take this book. Hide it in your heart. Be sanctified by its truth so that you'll keep walking with God in holiness and so that when you enter a dark world, you'll shine bright like a lamp, not hidden under a basket, but put on a lampstand to penetrate the darkness. Turn some heads toward the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. So now that you have the book which sanctifies, you're ready. You're prepared to step onto the missions field. You're prepared to step onto 
and into the sphere in which the mission takes place. Let's look at the sphere of the mission. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Very plainly, the sphere of our mission is the world. The text makes this abundantly clear. Verse 15, Jesus explicitly prays that the Father not take them out of the world, but that he protect them from the evil one during the time they're in the world. And then this verse, verse 18, I have sent them into the world. Did you catch the parallelism in verse 18? As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The Father sends Jesus into the world with a mission, a mission that involved rubbing shoulders with sinners, the outcasts of society, spending time with them, sitting down to talk with them, going to their houses, eating meals with them, even at the ridicule of others. And his mission culminated in dying on a cross to save all these people. In a parallel fashion, Jesus sends us into the world with a mission, a mission that involves rubbing shoulders with sinners, the outcasts in society, spending time with them, sitting down to talk with them, going to their house, eating meals with them, even at the ridicule of others, sometimes coming from people in the church. And our mission is to point them to the one who was sent into the world to save sinners. So this is the passage where we get that famous and catchy catchphrase, to be in the world, but not of the world. To be in the world, but not of it. And sometimes we hear that and the emphasis falls on the second half, not of the world. You got to be distinct, got to be different, got to be alien from this world. But I think for most of us, that's actually the easy part. Compared to the first part, not of this world is the easy part. The hard part is being in the world. You see, separation from the world really isn't that hard. In fact, it's preferred by a lot of Christians, and uh, it's more comfortable. Stay in church long enough, and you find that not being in the world is pretty easy and pretty comfortable. It's very, very comfortable to live in a little Christian bubble. A GOC bubble, if you will. Perhaps you've heard of it. Where you hang out with other Christians, you eat every meal with Christians, and if they're not available, you just eat alone. You take classes with Christians, or if none are available, you just sit alone. You study with Christians, spend all your free time with Christians, live with Christians, and completely isolate yourself and insulate yourself from non-Christians. Hey, fellowship is great, 
and biblical. Discipleship is great and biblical, but what about the mission? What about the mission? Are you stuck in the bubble? I know it's really nice in there, really comfortable, really fun, really clean. But what about the mission? Now, at this point, I do have to confess that I am the foremost sinner among us. Uh, I grew up going to church. I went to a Christian school uh, growing up. And then when I got, came to UCLA, I immediately got plugged into Grace on campus and never looked back. Uh, I was a pretty sheltered kid. And uh, I remember during my freshman year coming to UCLA and being shocked. I remember one thing that stuck out to me as I hung out with the people on my floor and the people I played basketball with. Wow, these people cuss a lot. Wasn't used to that. You don't have that at Chinese Christian schools. Uh, you cuss, you get demerits at that school. So we didn't have a whole lot of that. And I remember playing basketball in Wooden with my roommate one time. <laughs> And I was trying to trash talk, and I said, I'm going to kick your butt. <laughs> and he and some of the other guys started laughing at me. And I said, just, just, just say it. Just say the real word. Just say, kick your... I can't even say it. I'm too sheltered. I still can't say it. And so I know life in the bubble, and I know how, how comfortable it is, uh, and I knew how uncomfortable it was to, to have little scenarios like that where I was made fun of. Uh, and so I immediately ran to Grace on campus and just hung out with those friends where it was safe, com comfortable, and where they really understood me. Uh, so I've been in the bubble, I'm still in the bubble, fighting to get out of it, but let me just tell you my testimony uh, as a bubble boy, uh, as one trapped inside the bubble. Uh, I think I saw two things happening in my life. Uh, first of all, I, I, I found myself losing the ability to make non-Christian friends. After a while, I really felt like I couldn't even talk to non-Christians, couldn't even carry on a conversation with normal people. What do you mean you've never heard of the word sanctification? I'm uncomfortable with this conversation because you haven't said the word encourage 50 times. <laughs> and secondly, and I think even sadder than that, even sadder than my socially awkward self uh, in, in, non uh, in front of non-Christians, was that I lost my love for the lost. I lost my love for non-Christians. Now, if you asked me during my time at Grace on Campus as a student, do you love the lost? I would say, yes, yes, I do. I'd probably give you some Christianese answer like, oh, I'm growing in that. I struggle with that, but I want to grow in that. <laughs> uh, and the reality was that I didn't love them. Uh, to, to give that answer really was just to give lip service. And I, I wanted to love them, but I found that I couldn't. And you see, that's what life is like inside the bubble. You want to love the lost, but you just can't because there's a barrier between you and them. You're just observing them. Uh, you're, you're just looking at them from afar. They're just a specimen to you. 
And when you just observe non-Christians from afar, that doesn't lead to compassion for them. On the contrary, that leads to contempt for them. Because if all you're doing is observing, you're just going to look at their sin and say, oh, that's disgusting. Oh, I would never say that. Oh, I would never do that. And it only contributes to this contempt for them. It's only when you step outside of the bubble and you actually get to know them, live life with them, spend time with them, invest yourself in them, that you really start to love them. Uh, Not just, hey, I'm supposed to love the lost, but I love you because you're my friend. And your sin doesn't just disgust me, it breaks my heart. It hurts me to see you living that kind of life. And I want to give you a message of forgiveness and cleansing by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so uh, if you truly want to love the lost, if you truly want to love individual non-Christians, then you're going to have to step outside the bubble and get to know them. That's the only way that you're truly going to knit your heart to them. That's the only way that you're going to get them inside your heart. So, we must not flee the world. Jesus sends us right into it. He sends us into the world with a message on our lips and on our heart. He sends us to infiltrate the world with the gospel message of compassion from a Savior who laid his life down for his friends. Hey, church is great. GOC is great. Small groups are great because that's where we look at the truth and are sanctified by the truth. That's the preparation. That's the first point. That's verse 17. I love being here with you guys and talking about God's word and being sanctified by the word together But this is just point one. This is just the preparation. If this was football, this is just the huddle. Before each play in football, you don't just run out there and do whatever you want. The team gets together in a huddle. And that's the time to strategize. That's the time to go over the playbook, look what it says, and to come up with a play to try to advance the ball down the field. It's a time for encouragement. Hey, you messed up. You dropped the ball. Don't worry. This time, give you the ball. You'll do just fine. Going to get a touchdown this time. And what we're doing right here, what we do on Sundays, what we do in small group, that's the huddle. Guys, the game is out there. The game is played in the world. That's where the non-Christians are. That's where the souls are that we can tell the gospel. And so the problem is we just stay in the huddle. Stay in the huddle all day and all night. Never get out and play the game. And so we don't advance the ball. We don't advance the kingdom like we should. The sphere of the mission is the world. And so we got to get out there. That's where we can make disciples. So 
Let's bring some friends to heaven with us. How do we do this? Let's move on to some practical applications when it comes to being in the world but not of it. Ten applications to to help you get out of the bubble, uh, to get out of the huddle and get into the game. And uh, you don't need to write all these down. You don't need to follow all of them. In fact, if you try, you probably will get overwhelmed. So I just want you to get thinking practically about how to to do evangelism and form relationships for the purpose of evangelism. Uh, Maybe one or two of these will really resonate with you and help you in your evangelism, but here we go. Here's here's all 10. Uh, First of all, love Jesus more. Love Jesus more. In some ways, this whole series on evangelism would be unnecessary if we would just love Jesus more. You see, the deeper our conviction is that we're saved by the blood of Christ— the more we will evangelize. The deeper our joy over our own salvation, the more we will evangelize. And the deeper in love we fall with Jesus, the more we'll talk about him. Not only with each other, but with anyone we come into contact with. You see, you never have to force someone to talk about someone they love. They do it all the time. Ask a staff person who is married about their spouse, and they will talk your ear off. They will give you an essay if you request it. It's easy and natural to talk about who you love. How do you tell when a guy likes a girl at GOC? They talk about her all the time. It seems like every detail of his life is connected to her. Uh, Even if you really love your computer, you won't stop talking about that. Right? You ever meet someone with a Mac? <laughs> Mac people are evangelists. <laughs> They'll tell you why the Mac is the greatest computer and why everyone should have a Mac. Sometimes I study with you guys with my Dell. I feel like I'm in sin. <laughs> so, look to the Word, spend more time in prayer, listen to Christ-centered songs, fellowship with each other, do whatever you need to do to, to fan afresh the passion, the love for Jesus Christ, and then you won't be able to stop talking about him. Secondly, pray for people. Pray for people. In this series, we've talked about praying for the lost, we've talked about how ultimately it's God who saves and Thus, we have to ask him to do what only he can do, which is to give people a new heart. And this is true. But another reason to pray for your friends is because it will knit your heart to theirs. As you lift them up in prayer, they will be placed in the very center of your mind and heart. You see, if you pray for someone's salvation every day, you're going to have to work hard to never tell them about Jesus. Number three, find people interesting. Find people interesting because they are. A thousand things that are interesting have happened in their lives. You could sit down with any random person and they would captivate you for a solid three hours just telling you stories that have happened to them in their lives. People are very interesting. 2 Corinthians 5 16 says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Before we were saved, we viewed everyone according to the flesh. We looked at people with fleshly eyes, simply seeing them as people. But now that we're saved, we now view people with spiritual eyes. Yes, they're a human being. Yes, they're a person, but they are also a soul, an eternal soul that will spend forever in one of two places, heaven or hell. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, said this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, marry, uh, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. We have never met mere mortals. Every person we have ever looked upon, smiled at, frowned at, greeted, encouraged, insulted, slandered, touched, is a person bearing the marks of divine likeness and the imago Dei, Latin for the image of God. Every person is stamped with the divine image, and that image is broken, fallen, and in desperate need of restoration through the gospel. So now we see people how God sees people, and he is greatly interested in them. The Bible tells us that God desires all men to be saved. And so if you understand who people really are, and if you see them with the eyes of faith, if you see them spiritually, you'll know that they're interesting and it'll captivate your interest to be their friend. You know, some people don't, don't have a lot of friends. Uh, they don't have many people interested in them and maybe no one's interested in them. But what if you were? Oh, what a difference that would make. What if you were the only one who found their story interesting? And you were the only one that listened to them? Well, they might be interested in you and in your story as well and give an ear to hear your story, which is... Christ's story. Number four, value friendship itself. Value friendship itself. Don't just value the opportunities to share the gospel, though of course that's the most valuable, but value the friendship in and of itself too. Friendship is a good gift from God. There's great value in having a friend can learn about someone with a different background and a different experience. No matter who they are, they have something to teach you. No matter who they are, they have something to challenge you with. They can challenge you to grow as a person. In any friendship, you learn to be a loyal and caring friend. You'll learn how to get someone's back. And you'll gain someone who's got your back. Not to mention all the laughs you'll share, the experience you'll share. Uh, friendship is really, really good. Uh, friendship is something that is a blessing from the Lord in and of itself, even if the friendship is with a non-Christian. And sometimes, especially 
having a friendship with a non-Christian because they challenge you and push you in ways you're normally not challenged and pushed. If you place a high premium on friends, you'll pursue friendship with everyone around you, including non-Christians, and you'll find that you will have doors opening for the gospel. And if you're good at it, if you're good at making friends and good at cultivating friendships, then you're not just going to have friends, you're going to have good friends. You're going to have deep relationships. You're going to have people in your life that you really trust and they really trust you. And guys, trust is huge. See, if I trust you completely and I trust that you love me and you will always act and speak in my best interests, then I'm swinging the door wide open. Then, then you have the microphone and you can speak about whatever you want to speak about and I'm going to listen. And so if you value friendships and invest in friendships, you not only get open doors, you get wide open doors and that door stays open. Listen to J.I. Packer speak of the importance of friendships in evangelism. He writes, You are not usually justified in choosing the subject of conversation with another till you have already begun to give yourself to him in friendship and established a relationship with him in which he feels that you respect him, are interested in him, and are treating him as a human being and not just some kind of case. A Packer also writes, the right to talk immediately to another person about the Lord Jesus Christ has to be earned. And you earn it by convincing him that you are his friend and that you really care about him. The fifth practical application here is to adjust your expectations. Haters gonna hate. And sinners going to sin. If you think you're going to befriend sinners uh, without hearing any dirty jokes, a crude innuendo, pompous, outright bragging, cussing, complaining, then you need to adjust your expectations. This is the sphere in which the mission takes place with non-Christians. These are the people that need to be reached. Imagine going on a hike when you know it's raining. Well, what are you going to do? As you know, you're going to be hiking up some muddy trails. You're going to wear some shoes that you don't really care if they get dirty. You're going to wear some clothes that you don't really care that they get dirty. In fact, you're going to wear some clothes that maybe you don't mind just throwing away afterwards. Uh, You have expectations of getting dirty, and so you're prepared for it. And so if you think you're going to go into the world and befriend non-Christians and not get muddy, I think you're going to be as disappointed and frustrated as someone who's dressed up for a wedding, hiking on that muddy trail. So adjust your expectations, brace yourself, pray hard, seek accountability where you need it, and know that you're going into the world. Guard yourself from being 
influenced by it, be in it, but not of it. And one way that you can do that is, sixth, choose the environment. Choose the environment. If you're worried about being influenced by their sin, which is a very valid concern, and we shouldn't overestimate how strong we are, we should definitely know the dangers of falling into sin and participating in the very sins that we're condemning in non-Christians. If you're worried about this, then choose the environment Choose the environment where you hang out with them. Don't be in a place where there's going to be a lot of sin, where you know you won't be able to develop your friendship and talk about spiritual things. Be proactive. Take initiative. And you choose the place. You set the place where there's little to no chance of them dragging you into sin and where you can develop that relationship. And this is why I don't think that we need to join a frat to reach the frat boys. And we don't need to go to parties to reach the party people because the frat boys and the, f- the party people, they eat lunch too. <laughs> they eat dinner too. They go to class too. They study too. They need to cram for midterms too. And these are all different environments where you can be with them, develop a friendship with them, where there's going to be little to no temptation to join them in their sin. So, so set the, the environment. Uh, it's dangerous to go to a party, even if you have the intention of evangelizing. But it's not so dangerous to go on a hike, even if it's muddy, uh, to see the Griffith Observatory, see the Hollywood sign while you're at it, to hang out at the Santa Monica Pier. Uh, you, you, you have so many different environments in which you can develop relationships that are safe. Seven. Seven. Redeem the time. Colossians 4, 5 to 6, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. One, day to, one way to walk in wisdom toward outsiders is to use your time with them and make it count for eternity. Make the best use of the time. Redeem the time. Colossians is saying that life is a series of never-to-be-repeated opportunities. And all these moments with non-Christians, these never-to-be-repeated opportunities with them, our chances to get to know them, be their friend, and share the gospel. You have group projects. You have study groups. You have lab partners. You're forced to work with other students, so redeem the time. You have to work with them for the next two hours, and then next week do another two hours, and then next week do another two hours. And so redeem that time. Yes, work hard with them, but at the same time, can you use that time to be their friend, to get to know them, to care for them in some tangible way? Uh, Is there any kind of way that you can redeem the time to make it profitable in eternity instead of just focusing on getting the A on the project? Eight, 
pursue a hobby or pick up an old hobby that you've abandoned. Preferably, choose a hobby that you can do with someone else or at least someone that you can, or a hobby that you can talk about with someone else. And this too is a great avenue for making friends because it forces you out of the bubble. Whatever friends you make in pursuing the hobby, uh, you automatically have a shared interest. You automatically have a common ground. You automatically can bond through this. So maybe pick up a hobby or continue an old one and pursue it with a non-Christian friend. Number nine, be really nice. Be really nice. Maybe you don't have any hobbies. Maybe you don't have any non-Christian friends. You're not sure where to start here. Start with this one. Be really nice. Just be really, really nice to your classmates, uh, to the people who, who live in the room next to you. Uh, go out of your way to, to show them love. Go over and, and talk to them. See how they're doing Treat them out to lunch, cook for them, bake for them, write them a card, just go above and beyond, do abnormal stuff to show them that you love them, care for them, and see what kind of doors may open. And then 10th, evangelize with others. Philippians 1.27 only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Hear the unity in this passage. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. Why? Why believe the same? Why think the same? Why have the same convictions? So that you can strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We stand firm together, one mind, one spirit, so that we can strive together, shoulder to shoulders, arms linked together for the faith of the gospel, so that more will have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was very much a team player. He was rarely alone. In the book of Acts, which counts for Paul's missionary journeys, you just got to pay attention to how many times Luke writes, we, we, we. Paul was usually evangelizing with a team. Luke, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Titus, Jesus, sent the 70 disciples out two by two. Uh, so let's strive together. Maybe you purposefully take some classes together, not just with the purpose of fellowshipping with each other and not just so that you can share notes when one of you is absent, but to meet a new friend and talk with them and share your notes with them when they're absent. See, there's a lot of wisdom here in playing as a team. First of all, it's scary to make a new non-Christian friend on your own, but it's less scary if there's two of you. It can be easier. Secondly, it strengthens our testimony. If we only do evangelism on our own, 
then we're missing out on the opportunity to show these non-Christians the love of the family of God. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so if two of you or a group of you befriend a non-Christian, then in those interactions, that non-Christian is going to see you guys love each other, see you love each other with the very love of Christ and be attracted to that and want that. Third advantage of evangelizing together is that there's some built-in accountability talked about the influence of the world and, and the dangers of being of the world, very real dangers. And while we can be exposed to sin, it's going to be easier to remain unstained from the world if you have a friend to hold you accountable, if you have a friend to pull you out when need be and talk to you. Fourth advantage is that there's a greater chance that the unbeliever will click with one of you. Uh, maybe because of a shared interest, maybe because of a similar background or whatever. Uh, there may be one out of the group of GeoSeers that they really connect with and want to further their relationship with. And that person will have greater opportunities to share the gospel. So there's great wisdom, great accountability, and great encouragement in striving together for the gospel. So <clears throat> there's 10 practical applications of being in the world, but not of it. Uh, 10 ways to force yourself out of the GOC bubble. I want to now give a challenge to you and to me. I'm signing up. Uh, thank you all uh, for those of you who participated in the Reach Life Challenge, uh, these daily opportunities to work on your evangelism, to, to build bridges into people's lives, to develop relationships with people, and, and be bold about sharing the gospel with them. Um, just gave you another Reach Life list of 10 things that you can do, and, and here's one more. Uh, Reach Life Challenge uh, for, for you guys and for me. You guys can ask me about it. Hold me accountable to this too. It's a two-part challenge. Uh, one is to make a new non-Christian friend by the end of the quarter. And I know what you're saying. Oh man, spring quarter. Ain't nobody want to make new friends spring quarter. Uh, halfway through our classes, it's over. If I haven't talked to them now, no one wants to talk. Everyone's just on their phones. So that's why it's called a challenge because it's hard. And this probably is the hardest time of year to do it. And so if you develop the habit of, of just sticking out your hand and, and shaking people's hands and getting to know them, if you can do that now during spring quarter, it's going to be so much easier to maintain that habit later on, spring quarter, winter quarter, when people are more excited to, to meet new friends. Uh, so that's the first challenge, meet a new friend by the end of the quarter. Uh, the second part of this challenge is to revive an old friendship with a non-Christian. Uh, so here's your excuse to send that random text message, uh, that random Facebook message. Hey, man, how you doing? Haven't talked to you in, in a long time. Um, anything new? How you doing? And so rekindle an old 
relationship that you have, and this might be tremendously, tremendously beneficial. Pray about that relationship and see what kind of doors open. I want to close with a quote from historian Kenneth Scott Latourette, who from 1938 to 1953 was the chairman of the Department of Religion at Yale Divinity School. And he makes this observation about the spread of the gospel. The chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession or a major part of their occupation, but men and women who earned their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those whom they met in a natural fashion. May we be men and women like that.